Welcome to Living with the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. I'm Kathy Werzer. This is a special series of discussions on mortality, end-of-life wishes, and issues associated with those tough topics, all against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. The response to this deadly virus has been compared to a war, a war on an unseen enemy. So, America continues to wage you all-out war to defeat the virus, this horrible, horrible virus. You see how terrible it is, especially when you look at the numbers from yesterday. We also live in a culture that fights a war on death. We view death, which is an inevitable part of life, as an enemy. We fight against it, and when we ultimately succumb, it's as if we've lost the war. With COVID-19, dying for some of us is a distant but distinct possibility. Now, that may be hard to think about, but it is a good time to have a plan. What would you do if you were sick and you ended up in the hospital, perhaps fighting for your life? Dr. Ann McIntosh wants to make sure you're prepared. McIntosh is an emergency room physician in Minnesota, and she's a vocal advocate for advanced care planning. It's good to talk with you, doctor. How are you? I'm good. You know, it's interesting times. It's particularly interesting times in the advanced care plan world. You know, I want to ask you about that, but I want to know first, how are you and your colleagues doing on the front lines? Well, you know, it it has brought up a lot of thoughts and feelings. It's it's kind of intense, even though we have not yet faced the surge or the peak here in Minnesota. But it's bringing up lots of questions, and many of them are life and death questions. And how do we manage that? And what's our role in it? And of course, the question and in the talk that's going around is medical rationing and rationing of equipment or the lack of availability of equipment and what impact that's going to have on what kind of care we can offer. Let's talk about care too, because lots of hospital systems across the country are trying to get the word out on the need for healthcare directives and talking to loved ones about what kind of care you want, because they remind us, if we should go to the ER, we're going to go alone. So let's start with the basics. You know, what is a medical directive? Well, a medical directive goes by many names, a healthcare directive, an advanced care plan. Some people call it a living will. We like to call it an advanced care plan. And I think some of the most important things are, if you already have one, that's great. It's a good time to rediscuss it. If you don't have one, there's no time like the present to get it done. And that involves having a talk with your family and making sure everybody knows what you're thinking and what you would want during different care scenarios. But when you're not able to speak, they need to be able to speak for you. And having that written down and available to present to healthcare providers is is really what an advanced care plan is. As a physician, especially an ER physician, how do you use a directive? What are you looking for? Well, there's a lot of things that we look for, and some of it has to do with how complete or detailed the directive is. But we always want to look at what a person wants, particularly as far as very aggressive treatments such as CPR or what we call intubation, which means putting a tube down to help somebody breathe. Intubation, once we put that tube down, you can't talk, you can't swallow, and that requires a person to be hooked up to a ventilator because it's the ventilator that does the actual breathing. 
So we are especially interested, as that is often our role, is to institute these sorts of treatments. But in the bigger picture, we want to know how aggressive people want to be with really any treatments. And that even includes, you know, being admitted to the hospital versus getting evaluated and possibly be sent home. You know, most people, I would think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, most people want the full deal, a full resuscitation, which I'm betting is probably the conventional default to resuscitate at all costs, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that that's interesting. For sure, the default is to do everything. And from the healthcare system perspective, I think that the COVID epidemic is pushing us to reevaluate that at least to think about it in terms of, well, you know, if we can't do everything for everybody, you know, how do we decide? What do we do? And who do we do it for? I think as far as people's wishes to have everything done, I think in a lot of cases, people don't want to have everything done. The catch is, is that they haven't had the conversation with their loved ones. So therefore, the loved ones don't know. And if they haven't had the conversation you know, in the emergency department is not the time to make it. There's usually a lot of time constraints. It's often very chaotic. Things need to be decided and done in rapid fashion. And there's not time for the discussion that's really required to evaluate a person's values and what they really, truly want. Having had that discussion in the emergency department at times, even with patients and their families who have not had the discussion, One of the things I find empowering and enlightening, I guess, is that oftentimes the patient, the person who's who's sick and perhaps has many health problems or or not, they have a pretty good idea of what they want. It's just never been discussed. And I often find that those people are guiding their family and their loved ones towards the decision and empowering them to make the decisions to not necessarily do everything. Hmm. You mentioned, you know, that panic situation in an ER. I mean, how many times does that happen really when someone is kind of wild-eyed and gasping for air and there's all this fear? I mean, do you run into that on a fairly fairly regular basis? Actually, we do. And that's one of the things that really has motivated me and encouraged me to keep doing this work because that's certainly not the ideal. It's not the ideal situation to make such an important decision and make such an important plan. And I think a lot of us have had these situations and a lot of us have memories where we feel like because the default is to do everything, we didn't feel like we really did the best thing for the patient. And and that's not a good a good memory. You know, a lot of emergency physicians and intensive care physicians will talk about feeling like they've tortured somebody. And I know that's certainly the case for me. One of the kind of, I guess, things that is coming up in the conversation with COVID that I think connects to this is uh, moral injury amongst healthcare providers. And, And I really, as I was sitting here thinking about this, I thought, you know, that's kind of the motivating factor and where a lot of us have come from in developing a passion for end-of-life care planning. And it's moral injury, I think, also to people's families when they kind of look back and, you know, wish they'd have done this but haven't. And that's all, that's what we're trying to avoid. Can I get back to care in the era of COVID-19? Somebody comes in, they are in distress, right? 
and they may or may not have an advanced care directive. I mean, how do you handle something like this? And maybe you already have done it so far in the past few weeks. I don't know. Maybe you might do it in the next few weeks. What happens? Well, if they don't have an advanced care directive, at this point, we do everything. I personally will try to talk to the person if they're able to answer my questions. You know, do you want everything done and do, you know, sort of the down and dirty approach to advanced care planning? And I certainly always talk to anybody I intubate ahead of time. If they're able to speak and make those decisions, I ask them if this is what they want to do. And I try to explain it to them briefly, but in an understandable manner. So, you know, and right now, in our state, we're not facing shortages of ventilators and that kind of thing. So we're able to provide everything to people if that's what they want or if it's not otherwise specified. Can we talk about ventilators? Because that is what has been really capturing, obviously, news headlines, right? But it's not a harmless intervention. What do you think people need to know about ventilators, especially in this era? Well, I think there's a lot to be known about it, which is why it's good to be getting this information out ahead of time. So being placed on a ventilator is a big deal. Um, It's an aggressive medical intervention that is, as you said, not without side effects. So I think one thing, it's important to understand what exactly this, this means. And I know myself and other physicians, we throw around being intubated and on the vent, you know, like it's an everyday no big deal sort of thing. And in some cases, you know, after surgery or something like that, that's true. But in this case, it's really not. Getting on the ventilator means that we need to intubate you. We need to put about a 10-inch tube that's about as big as your small finger down your throat into your trachea. It goes through your vocal cords, so you're not able to speak, you're not able to swallow, and tubes in your airway are known to be one of the most uncomfortable things that we do to people. You think you get a little dust ball in your nose and you sneeze while you're putting this huge tube down in, it's very irritating. So it requires that we use sedative medications. So we take that tube and we hook it up to a machine called the ventilator and we can make adjustments on the ventilator, how much oxygen you get, how much pressure is going into your lungs and and that kind of thing. The tube is like tied into your mouth so that it doesn't fall out. So, you know, that's kind of the basics of the ventilator. I think another important consideration, you know, within these days of COVID is the fact that if you're being put on a ventilator for COVID, your prognosis is poor. You know, the risk or the severity of the disease that's reflected by the need for a ventilator, this is for the most severely ill. And this is the way that COVID kills people. It's through the respiratory system. So I I think that that's one thing for people to keep in mind is there are people that have gotten off the ventilator. There are people that have been what we call extubated and have lived through that with COVID. But the numbers of people who are surviving, you know, the more intervention that's required, the less the chance that you survive. So one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, I think if you're being faced with intubation and you're still alert and aware, you can speak for yourself. Your healthcare uh, POA or power of attorney, it doesn't necessarily need to speak for you when you're able to speak. But I would also say this is a time to say what you need to say because you cannot talk when you're on the ventilator. And I just, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, some of these things and know that they may not be able to talk to their people anymore. 
So say what you want to say, be ready for that. You know, you can't be thinking about that when you're having somebody standing over you with, uh, with the tube. Wow. Wow. And are there long-term effects, even if there's a success and you are weaned from the ventilator, can you have any long-term effects? From being on the ventilator or from the COVID? Well, the ventilator itself, right now it's looking like people are on the ventilator for one to two weeks with COVID. So it's a relatively long period of time to be on the ventilator. The tube goes through your vocal cords, so it's not uncommon. Even people who have just had a tube done for surgery will find that oftentimes they have a little bit of a sore throat or a hoarse voice. So that can be even more severe the longer the tube is in. Sometimes if the tube is in for too long, they discuss what's called a tracheotomy or to avoid that upper airway and without getting too detailed on that for long-term intubation. It can be hard on your trachea because you have a tube with a balloon blown up pushing on your trachea. So there's a lot of possible complications. The other issue with being on the ventilator for COVID or anything else is that it bypasses a lot of your airway defense mechanisms, you know, your cough reflex, your sneeze reflex. So it puts you at increased risk for what we call super infections or a bacterial infection that comes on top of, you know, the viral infection that is COVID. So that's another thing to, you know, be aware of. Wow. This is much more complicated because I think, well, we've seen the stories about the number of ventilators needed. And I think there is obviously maybe a mistaken thought in the public that if I'm on a ventilator, I'm going to live. If I get one, you know, it's going to be something that's going to help me get through this if I am really, really sick. It sounds like it's kind of a roll of the dice in a sense, depends on how sick you are. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, one of the things that we don't know about COVID among many is we don't know how to predict who is going to survive, especially when they get to that point. Now, we know that it disproportionately affects older people and people with comorbidities, other diseases, diabetes, COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is most commonly due to smoking in our society, obesity. So all of those things are strikes against you. Once you get to the point of needing the ventilator, that kind of takes you into another tier of severity of the disease. I don't want to say that, you know, because it's not true that nobody survives, but it again, there's a certain percentage of people who don't get off the ventilator who, you know, continue to deteriorate despite all that we have to do, which I think is another point of consideration. If, if you're writing your advanced care plan and you are getting to that point, you know, do you want them to disconnect you from the ventilator? Or make the decision too, I would think, that if you do get discharged from the hospital, you're alive, you know, you might wind up at a long-term rehab facility, right? After you're weaned off a ventilator, that can happen too. I mean, there's a lot of different things that can happen here, but, but I'm wondering how you put that all in an advanced care directive. That is true. There is a lot of different things. And I want people to remember None of this is COVID specific. I mean, we've talked about kind of some certain issues that are COVID specific, but in general, anytime you're on the ventilator with a critical illness, it's possible that you survive and you get off the ventilator, but you're not ever better than you were before. Hmm. And oftentimes you're very debilitated. You know, you haven't been up and around, you're very weak and you do end up in a long-term care facility. 
particularly if you're on the ventilator for a long period of time, we have to provide people nutrition. You know, fighting these diseases and all of this stuff requires a lot of calories. And so when somebody's on the ventilator, those calories are provided with a feeding tube that usually goes down your nose. Sometimes they install one across your abdominal wall. So additional considerations are, you know, do you want the feeding tube continued if you get off the ventilator? And in what condition would you want that to occur? If you're not thinking or not able to interact with your surroundings, do you want the feeding tube discontinued? There's all kinds of, you know, guidance that you can provide your family in making those kind of decisions. And I think that that's a really good point is that we need to look at some of those details. And there, there is resources out there on most advanced care plans and pulsed forms, which I know we haven't talked about yet, but of how you can do this. And it looks at the more aggressive interventions that we often use, including feeding tubes, artificial nutrition, artificial hydration, dialysis, you know, antibiotics, and, and all of those kind of things. Wow, a lot to think about. You know, you mentioned this prior in our conversation about power of attorney. So in other words, there should be a surrogate decision maker capable of implementing your end of life desires, right? Should you become unconscious? If you don't do that, if there's not a power of attorney, what happens? I, I can only imagine it's probably, a, at least in my family, it would be like a free-for-all in a sense, which is not what you need either. No, absolutely. If there's nobody that's been designated, that's what happens. Sometimes families come in, and this is the really sad part, and this is another part of advanced care planning that you know gets a lot of us passionate. Um, it's hard enough to have somebody sick, severely sick, and or dying, but then to have family members in this supercharged emotional situation and not knowing what the person thinks. So it's then everybody's kind of left to their own and people fight, families fall apart, you know, at a time when they really, really need to be coming together to support themselves and each other as well as their sick loved one. So having a person that can speak for you or a medical power of attorney is really important. Beyond that, it's really important that everybody who may be involved in the situation gets to hear ideally from you what you want. So they get to hear it from the horse's mouth, as they say. You know, so nobody can come in and say, well, she told me this and she told me this, or I thought she meant this. Mm-hmm. What are the questions you have to ask yourself as you're trying to decide who this very important person is going to be? Oh, yeah. It is a very important person. It's the VIP of your life. Um, one is, are they able to explain your wishes, not their wishes. And I'm always really careful as an emergency physician to say, what would the person want? I'm not asking what, you know, the son or daughter or whoever would want. We want to know what the person would want in this situation. So it has to be somebody who's able to communicate that. It's also somebody who needs to be strong enough to talk to uh, healthcare providers and stand up for your wishes, which kind of brings another topic to mind and the number of people I hear that say that they've been to the emergency department and their person had an advanced care plan and it didn't get instituted. So ideally also it's the POA is somebody who is physically available in the same town or city that you're in so that they can present to the hospital or the care center in person. 
those are a couple of the top qualities that I think you want in a POA. I got to circle back on what you just said about, so someone has an advanced care directive, they go into the ER, but sometimes that's not instituted. Is that also, well, as we're talking about COVID-19, is that also a situation where if you walk in and say, I have this, you might not get the full meal deal, right? Exactly. It's interesting because I feel like one of the ways the discussion has changed with COVID is that when in my work in advanced care planning and trying to get this idea out to the public, the stories I hear are, you know, my person went to the emergency department, they had an advanced care plan, but they still got intubated and this, this and that. I think COVID is turning the conversation a little bit to, hey, wait a minute, what happens if I can't get the ventilator? And I think that that's a reason that everybody should be motivated to do it. If you don't want the ventilator, put that in writing. That can help us as the healthcare providers. Should we get to the point where we are rationing ventilators, we won't have, you know, accidentally put somebody who didn't want one on a ventilator, which may lead to another person who wants a ventilator to not get one. But yeah, I think it's really important if you present to an emergency department, even if your advanced care plan is on file at that healthcare facility, to have it, ideally a printed copy of it and say, you know, she has this advanced care directive. Here it is. Take a look at it. She does or doesn't want this thing. She doesn't want CPR. She does want CPR. And have your family and POA knowledgeable on that information because oftentimes in the emergency department, in an emergency, we don't have time to get a hold of your advanced care plan and get it copied out of the computer and look it over. Right, right. Because you're actually trying to save a life. You know, I mean, you would not have that opportunity probably. Yeah, first things first. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You really bring up a lot of great issues here, Dr. McIntosh. What are some of the main reasons people give for not getting this done? I mean, I know we have this, this crisis in front of us and people are starting to talk about it, right? But what to this point has been the most the most obvious reasons people give for not saying, yeah, I should sit down and actually do this? You know, I think one of the main reasons is just starting the conversation. It's like most things that we procrastinate on. People feel like it's not going to be a pleasant conversation. It's scary. It's talking about death. It's almost as if we talk about it, it's going to happen. Or sometimes people feel like if we bring it up, that the reason we're bringing it up is because we we see something that we're not telling them that this is going to happen. And that's not necessarily the case. It's all kinds of studies show that having the conversation, people feel better, both the people, the loved ones, as well as the person whose advanced care plan we're talking about. It opens up lots of conversations, many of which don't have anything to do with death and dying. They just have to do with family values and history and interesting stories and things that end up being fun to talk about. All the studies have also shown that people who have had this conversation, the survivors have a better grief course. They feel better after somebody's death. They recover sooner. There's, there's really no downside to, to doing this and having the conversation. I think it's really just breaking through that initial barrier of doing it. I remember hearing someone say when this was brought up, do you have an advanced care directive? And the person said, no, it's too early for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what do they say? It's always too early until it's too late or something like yeah, that. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, which is true. And one of the things, you know, my response to that is much of the advanced care planning movement started in the United States on the basis of 
three cases of young women who, you know, had a terrible event that left them in a persistent vegetative state. And families were fighting, parents were fighting, people were fighting with hospitals, hospitals were fighting with people. And I think arguably all three of these women had an existence that most of us wouldn't want. But, you know, there was no way for them to be able to communicate that. I think we're better now, but we're still not there yet. Many doctors I know have pretty strict advanced directives. Do they know too much? I don't know. What would you, how would you define too much, I guess? <laughs> I think, you know, there's a, a really moving article from several years ago, but it's called How Doctors Die. And I think the first sentence starts out, it's different than the rest of us. I think that we, we, know, we know more. We know that the survival rate of CPR is not as good as it is on TV, for example. We know that the more underlying health problems you have, the less likely you are to survive CPR or aggressive medical interventions, particularly with what we would call a meaningful recovery, a recovery where you can do what you want. And I think that's one of the values conversations that has to go into advanced care planning. You know, what is the life that you're willing to live after this? You know, if you can't interact verbally, is that something that you want? And I think all those conversations kind of go into this, but I think we do have some insights on that. And one of my, again, kind of motivating passions is that we know these things. We need to be honest with people and tell them, you know, here, this is the deal, you know, and like I said, with the ventilators and COVID, I'm not saying that nobody survives being on the ventilator with COVID because that is not true. But what is true is that if you need the ventilator, you have a severe case of COVID. I mean, that's for you to know, but that's also for your family to know and understand. And there's a lot of situations like this in medicine. And when you're making your advanced care plan, you can't get into every specific possibility that might happen to you, which is why you need to have that general kind of values conversation. But you know, there's a lot of different examples that we can use to sort of mold the conversation or give people some sort of firm thing to base their discussion on. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, with this pandemic, and I know you're an ER physician, I bet you've got an advanced care directive. Have you revisited that directive? I have actually. And even kind of right at the start of this, and knowing that you know, I was in a high risk group, both as a healthcare worker and uh, based on my age. <laughs> my uh, power of attorney was out of the country. She's back now. And I have revisited my healthcare directive with her, as well as a friend of mine who is a emergency physician in terms of kind of really the details. In fact, my emergency physician friend of mine and I had a a big discussion on really details of what we would want. How long would we want to be on the ventilator if we weren't showing improvement, you know, and uh, all those kind of details. Interesting. I figured you probably would revisit your directive. You were kind to take time from your busy day. I really appreciate this, doctor. Well, you're welcome. Anytime. That's Dr. Ann McIntosh, an emergency room physician in Minnesota. She's also an advocate for advanced care directives. A reminder that state laws vary in what is considered a valid advanced directive and pulsed form. 
and whether these documents can be used in a state other than the state in which the document was created and executed. We suggest Googling advanced care directives and the name of your state for information. This has been Living With the End in Mind, the COVID Conversations. Thanks for listening. If you like this, let us know and share it with your friends. I'm Kathy Warzer. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay curious. Stay curious.